Good evening and welcome to this Retina UK information webinar. This is one of a series of webinars that we're hosting and we'll be delivering at least one on a different topic each month. Today we're really pleased to be joined by Roly McGaw. Roly is a Wellcome Trust funded clinical lecturer at the MRC Human Genetics Unit at University of Edinburgh and a consultant ophthalmologist in NHS Lothian. Rowley undertook his PhD with Charles French Constant at the Scottish Centre for Regenerative Medicine. Using induced pluripotent stem cells to model X-linked retinitis pigmentosa prior to taking his clinical fellowship with Graham Black in Manchester. Rowley now runs the Inherited Retinal Dystrophy Service in Edinburgh, allowing him to combine his clinical and research interests. We're also joined today by Matt Carr, our Information and Support Manager, and Kate Arkell, our Research Development Manager, who will be collecting questions throughout the presentation. Now, there are a couple of ways for you to ask questions. You can either type your question in the Q&A section at the bottom of your screens, and these questions will be asked by the team on your behalf. Alternatively, you can raise your hand by pressing the Alt and Y keys of your, if you are using Windows computer, or the option and why if you're using a Mac. We'll then be able to ask you to unmute your microphone in order for you to ask your own question. So please do leave your questions throughout the presentation and they'll be answered at the end. We'll endeavour to answer all of your questions, or certainly as many as we can, but any questions we're not able to get around to today will be followed up over the course of the next couple of weeks. Thank you again for joining us. And without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Rowley. Thanks very much, Denise. Denise, can you just uh, nod if you can hear me now that I've unmuted? Yeah, excellent, okay. All right, good evening, everybody. I'm gonna share my screen, which you can hopefully all see now. Again, Denise, you just wanna give a quick nod if, yeah, excellent, thumbs up, fab, okay. Um, Great. So every day is a school day. I had no idea that Command and Y raise your hand in Zoom, but now I do know. That's great. Um, thanks so much for inviting me uh, and thanks so much for coming to, along to listen. Um, I'm sure I've pre presented to a few of you uh, in the past. I've done a few talks for, uh, for Retina UK. Uh, I've done a few talks for RP Fighting Blindness back when it was RP Fighting Blindness and I also present quite a lot uh, to um, the Edinburgh group, uh, group that, are, that um, well pre-COVID used to meet um, every few months uh, up in, in Edinburgh. Um, so, so yeah, so I, for those who I haven't presented to or met before, um, as he says, uh, my clinical and research interest is in uh, retinal dystrophies and ma mainly RP. Um, and uh, the, the, the vast majority of my research has always been uh, trying to understand the mechanism uh, that which genes which cause RP, or rather genes mutations in which cause RP, um, I've always been trying to figure out the mechanism as to how they function within the cells at the back of the eye. But laterally, I've Begun to think a little bit about how cells die in retinitis pigmentosa. Um, and uh, I, we've been doing a little bit of work in the lab on that. And I thought rather than just churn out the same old 
uh, mechanistic story that I normally talk about. Maybe I could talk about uh, the, 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 the new uh, work we've been doing, um, which is trying to understand how photoreceptors die. And the reason for that, and the reason I always say about, uh, you know, understanding mechanism as well, is that, you know, we are really on the, hopefully the precipice, the, the, the start of a gene therapy revolution. Uh, we, as you all know, we now have a gene therapy uh, in clinic for patients with mutations in the RP65 gene, who then develop either uh, uh, labors congenital amaurosis, which is a retinal dystrophy, or they can develop uh, quite severe uh, uh, retinitis pigmentosa. And so that has finally made it to clinic. We can give it in the NHS. And they're now follow several uh, gene therapy trials, which are getting up and running uh, to target different genes in RP and more will follow. And so um, we are really at the, at the forefront or at the start, hopefully, um, gene therapy becoming a, a, a real uh, treatment option uh, for patients with RP. But that said, the improvement in vision that the trials have shown, the published literature shows that whilst there is definitely an improvement in vision whenever you give uh, gene therapy, um, the the uh, vision doesn't improve to uh, you know to uh, a 2020 level and therefore there's always room to give uh, something else and um, you know whenever someone has high blood pressure they tend to start on one drug but inevitably they end up on two or three drugs and I very much think that retinitis pigmentosa and retinal dystrophies in general will be eventually hopefully if you know all our research pays off uh, will be treated by a sort of a polypharm pharmacy just like high blood pressure uh, as an example is. So yeah, so I'm going to talk to you tonight about what we've been doing to try to better understand how cells die in retinitis pigmentosa, because if you can uh, stop cells dying, then in theory uh, that will allow uh, successfully uh, what we call transfected cells, cells that have been given a gene therapy, hopefully that will allow them to function for longer if you're also stopping them dying. So just before I start, I sometimes like to start with this slide uh, in my talks. Um, what I'm showing you here is the euglena, which is a single-celled flag flagellate uh, organism. Um, so it uh, swims around in water and um, it was around during the Cambrian explosion about 541 million years ago and it was a single cell and it floated around and it, uh, the only way it could uh, interact with its surroundings was by touch and feel and um, then one day um, uh, they had a, one of the uh, Euglena had a mutation in one of its genes um, and it started producing a protein because genes and because of that you could then suddenly or these euglena could suddenly uh, appreciate their surroundings they could they could um, you know, light would fall on these cells on these little organisms and they, they were the the fluorophore this light sensing protein would change shape and and therefore they could sense light but they had nothing really you know, to, they, they couldn't really process this information. So they then had to sort of build a central processing unit behind this primitive eye um, and that became the brain. 
So um, as we like to say in ophthalmologists, and I, you know, no, no matter what neurologists say, we like to say that the brain is simply an extension of the eye. I don't think anybody here needs convincing that the eye is the most important organ in the body, but I just like to get that in there early that the, the, the light sensing uh, part of our body, the eye, was around way before the brain. And here we have the eye, the modern day human eye. Um, uh, I'm showing you just a cross section um, of, a, of a cartoon of an eye. Um, light shines through um, the uh, cornea, um, which is the crystal clear window at the front of the eye. It then moves through your pupil and is what we call refracted by your lens. So the lens, your lens changes uh, shape to allow you to focus on light that's coming from near objects and distance objects. And it's that lens that becomes cloudy whenever you get a cataract and of the RP uh, you know very much causes early onset cataract and we remove that lens and replace it with a little plastic lens in cataract surgery and then the light falls on the business end of the eye at the back of the eye which is the retina and the retina is a three-layered neurosensory structure and um, which is just absolutely beautiful in its simplicity and um, it's 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 a three order uh, 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 structure. So light sensing photoreceptors uh, communicate with bipolar cells, which communicate with ganglion cells. And that's all it takes to transmit an electro, uh, um, uh, an ele an, uh, sorry, a, 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 a signal from, from light into an electrical signal, which allows you to see. So it's an absolutely incredible structure and, and so, so very simple. And as I mentioned, right at the back, we have the light sensing photoreceptor, um, which in my opinion is the most important cell in the body. And um, you have about 120 million of these in each eye. <clears throat> Now, the uh, photoreceptor has evolved um, to contain, uh, it, it's made up of an inner segment and an outer segment. Now, this outer segment is really just a um, modified cilium. Now, the cilium are the antennae of cells which, um, uh, which uh, detect uh, signals. That they're the signaling organelle of every cell. Um, and uh, uh, cilia detect signals or they, they signal uh, because of a protein called a G-protein coupled receptor. And our light sensing pigment that the euglena first developed 540 million years ago is a G-protein coupled receptor. And in order for, um, uh, for normal vision to, to occur, these G-protein coupled receptors called rhodopsin have been packed into the outer segment, which is an expansion of the cilia membrane. And so uh, there's a constant turnover of rhodopsin Thousands of molecules are, tra uh, are trafficked from the inner segment of the photoreceptor into the outer segment, which allows them to be packed together. And therefore, whenever light uh, falls on the, uh, on the retina, it stimulates these rhodopsin molecules in the, in the outer segment, which then is, uh, allows us to generate an electrochemical signal, which then uh, goes to the brain and tells us what we're seeing. So this photoreceptor is the most important cell for vision. It is very, very active because of the thousands of molecules per second that have to be trafficked uh, from the inner segment to the outer segment. And therefore, they're very susceptible um, to uh, things going wrong. And of course, whenever things go wrong in the photoreceptor, uh, patients get retinitis pigmentosa. And retinitis pigmentosa is the leading cause of visual loss in children and in adults of working age. And um, 
what I'm showing you in this slide is a healthy retina on the left and a retinized pigmentosa retina on the back. So whenever we look at the back of people's eyes in clinic, this is classically what we see. We see uh, peripheral bone spicules, uh, pigmented bone spicules in the periphery of the, of the retina. Um, hence the name retinized pigmentosa. We see thinning of the blood vessels and we see the uh, optic nerve going pale. And whenever we look at that, we see it's retinized pigmentosa. <clears throat> um, and patients, um, with this, whenever they start developing this, um, as all the patients today, all the, all the uh, uh, listeners today with RP will testify, they get uh, loss of uh, their night vision, uh, constriction of their visual fields, and eventual loss of their central vision. But this is, retinized pigmentosa is a fairly archaic term. It's fairly old fashioned. It's, you know, we diagnose it whenever we look at the back of the eye. Uh, but in actual fact, um, mutations in over 150 genes cause the same clinical picture. And so the last 30 years have been spent by um, geneticists and researchers trying to identify all the different genes which uh, contribute and cause retinized pigmentosa. Um, and now, uh, that we uh, know of the vast majority of these genes, our job now is to better understand their function uh, and better understand how these cells are dying. So um, three approaches to identifying treatments uh, uh, that we work on in the, in the lab is number one, as I mentioned, trying to understand what's going wrong uh, and trying to fix it. Um, a second way is to try to stop the cells dying. And a third way is try to fix or replace the gene. And so these three approaches, uh, the first one, understanding what's going wrong and fix it, you need to understand the function of genes. And I've spoken with Retina UK about this in the past, about how we do this in the lab. Secondly, as I'll speak about tonight, stopping the, day the cells dying. And in order to do that, we have to understand how the cells are dying. And finally, fixing and replacing the gene. And that is, you know, conventional gene therapy or CRISPR therapy, um, which I'm not going to speak about today. So as I say, over 150 genes are known to cause it. I'm just showing a, a graphic here of all the different genes that are commonly tested on panels of, um, of genetic analysis. Whenever patients present with RP and we send their blood off, for example, to the labs in Manchester, uh, these are all the genes that are tested. Um, and my gene of interest, uh, or certainly during my PhD and, and into my postdoc jobs, where is the retinitis pigmentosa GTPH regulator gene, or RPGR, which causes causes the vast majority of X-linked disease, about 90%. It causes about 15 to maybe, well, 15% of all RP. And it's a very aggressive form of disease. Uh, patients uh, get uh, visual loss early on. Um, and so it's quite a, it causes quite a severe uh, form of retinitis pigmentosa. So, like I say, we want to, laterally we've been thinking, how do photoreceptors die in RP? Do they all die the same way? Uh, just in the last slide, I showed you this list of 150 genes. And for gene therapy, we need to target those genes one at a time. But actually, if photoreceptors all died in the same way, if the final downstream common pathway of cell death was the same, then perhaps if you could understand it and identify a drug which could stop it happening, then this one drug could treat multiple alleles, multiple different genetic causes of RP. 
And what I'm showing you in this slide <coughs> is just a little cartoon um, which uh, Faye Newton in the lab uh, produced in a little in a, a review article about photoreceptor death in RP. And it just shows the complicated uh, nature of photoreceptor death, how poorly understood it is, and how several different pathways have been proposed for how photoreceptors die in RP. Traditionally, it was always thought that cells died by a, a cell death mechanism called apoptosis, which is a programmed cell death. Um, and by programmed, I mean the cell itself decides to die because it's not functioning properly and releases a series of chemicals within the cell which cause it to apoptose, to shrink and to, and to sort of melt away. But laterally, <coughs> other forms of, disease, of um, cell death have been identified as possible uh, causes of photoreceptor death in, in RP. One of which you know, is necroptosis, <coughs> which is a, again, another form of programmed cell death, but it is uh, much more akin to ne uh, necrosis, which is unprogrammed cell death, where the cell is effectively bursts and releases all its contents into the tissue in which it resides. And um, if necroptosis was the, is the cause of cell death in RP, it would release a lot of pro-inflammatory um, uh, molecules, which would lead to inflammation in RP. And we know that retinitis pigmentosa has a very low-grade chronic inflammatory component because the type of cataracts you get um, in RP tend to be what we call patients with uh, inflammatory eye disease get. Um, we know that sometimes in the back of the eye you can see very low-grade inflammation in the eye. And we know from studies that if you remove um, samples from the eye of patients with RP and do very uh, simple um, analysis of uh, what we call cytokines, which are um, molecules which regulate inflammation, there are pro-inflammatory cytokines in the eye of a patient with RP. So this would be in keeping with necroptosis being uh, a, a cause of cell death in RP. So um, do photoreceptors all die in the same way in RP? And if they do, can the cell death pathway be a target for therapy? And that's what we've latterly been thinking. So um, uh, as Denise said, I did my uh, PhD using stem cells, um, but uh, sort of the, the, the work I've been doing in the last five years or so, I've actually been working on animal models uh, because in many ways, they're better uh, models to, to assess uh, photoreceptor function. And so we generated some uh, new models of RPGR mediated uh, RP. So we took some mice and we, uh, we mutated their RPGR gene. Um, and in the lab, in, in the human genetics unit where I work, we've got a very nice uh, phenotyping suite where we've, uh, over the years, managed to accrue uh, much of the equipment that we use in clinic uh, to, to diagnose RP and to monitor the progression of RP. Um, and uh, we, we have that now in the HGU to look at our mice. 
And one of the things we have is an electrophysiology machine. Um, electrodiagnostic testing is something which is the sort of the uh, absolute ultimate way of, of, of clinically diagnosing RP. Uh, a lot of you will no doubt have had this done. You have um, electrodes attached to your eyes. You're, you are sat in the dark for 30 to 40 minutes and then very uncomfortably lots of flashes of light are flashed at you. And that allows us to um, assess the uh, electrical function of the retina and we see very characteristic patterns of RP, uh, sorry, characteristic patterns of changes in your uh, electrical function with RP. And we can see that in our mice. And um, on the left, what I'm showing you is, is, is a photograph of our mice in the machine. And below that, I'm showing you tracings of the electrophysiology readout. Uh, in blue, you get the classic trace, um, and in red, I'm showing you the uh, tracings of uh, the mutant mice, which have a flattened ERG curve, which shows that they are, they're not seeing as well. We also have an OCT machine, so anyone who's been to the opticians or indeed to an eye hospital will no doubt have had their, uh, uh, their backs of their eyes uh, imaged by an OCT machine, which takes a lovely, almost like a histological cross-section of the back of the eye and allows us to look at retinal thickness. And uh, what I'm showing you in the middle here is a photograph of a healthy mouse, and below that one of the, uh, the mice with mutations in RPGR, and what I'm showing you is that there is thinning of the retina as these photoreceptors die. Another really good marker that we use in clinic um, for assessing progression of disease and even diagnosing disease is uh, autofluorescence, where we shine a blue light into the back of the eye. And whenever the retina is becoming a little bit unhealthy, uh, the retina autofluoresces normally. Uh, but whenever it starts to become unhealthy, it's, it autofluoresces, it's, it, it has an increase in auto and what we see in our mice and what I'm showing you on the right is that the RP model, the RPGR mutant mouse, gets increased autofluorescence. So these are lovely tools of assessing um, loss of function and loss of structure and uh, ill health in, in, in RP. And therefore we can monitor mice and see whether uh, they are losing sight and whether we can prevent it with drugs. So um, in order to better understand how cells are dying, uh, we have been using a, a, a technique called single cell RNA sequencing. Now, um, sequencing is, is where we look at either the DNA um, or the RNA to see um, the, if we're looking at the DNA, we sequence the DNA, which is, and when I say sequence, what I mean is we read along the genetic code for all the different letters that make up the genetic code. And whenever we sequence people, uh, the, the genes of people with RP, we can find changes in the sequence and that, uh, you know, and these changes are disease causing. Now, uh, DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein. And we can also uh, sequence the RNA in samples. And whenever we do that, we can see it, it's a good marker for the amount of um, RNA that's being made. We can see levels of RNA and uh, changes in RNA levels between uh, you know, healthy and uh, unhealthy tissue can give you know, uh, can give you um, ideas as to well many things, um, including just how uh, just how unhealthy a cell is, um, and what we have done, always done in the past is we've done 
blood coronary sequencing, where we've just taken a load of cells or a load of tissue and we've extracted the RNA from all the tissue and we've run that on a sequencer and we've detected uh, how much RNA is being made in the entire tissue. But unfortunately, the retina is made up of six different cell types. That's actually quite lucky that, you know, most tissues, for example, the brain are hundreds and hundreds of cell types, but still six is too many because you've got the light sensing photoreceptors, but you've also got bipolar cells, ganglion cells, amacrine cells, uh, retinal pigment epithelium. And so um, the RNA that's being produced by all those cells uh, muddies the water and doesn't allow you to uh, uh, actually understand exactly how much RNA is being produced by the photoreceptors. So uh, the new uh, th uh, uh, technique is called single cell RNA sequencing, which allows you to analyze uh, the RNA that's being made of every single cell individually. And it's an incredible technique. And I'm just going to talk you through it slowly. So what we do is we take uh, uh, retina of our RPGR mutant mice and of our healthy mice and we dissociate the retina into all the different cell types. What we then do is we um, uh, put it on a single cell um, uh, chip um, and this, uh, uh, by doing so, every single cell is put into a little uh, uh, micro gel um, uh, drop, micro droplet um, of gel, um, and the cells are then lysed, and the RNA is harvested from these cells, and so every single cell is um, is separated and um, the, therefore the RNA from each individual cell is put in this micro droplet. What then happens is all the RNAs, all the different transcripts, so if you remember, um, uh, DNA makes RNA makes proteins, so the cell uses DNA to make all the RNA, and there are different levels of RNA, and each RNA transcript uh, is then tagged with a barcode, which is a sequence of DNA, it's a string of, le of letters, um, that's unique to that micro droplet. So every single RNA transcript has a barcode and therefore it can be traced back to that individual droplet and therefore that individual cell. Then we amplify the RNA, so we make tons of the, or rather we, we turn it almost back into DNA and then amplify it. So then you have, you know, millions and millions of transcripts, but again, they're all barcoded, so we know exactly which cell they came from. And you then read every single transcript on a sequencer um, and you get hundreds and hundreds of millions of reads, of transcript reads. And from those transcripts, from those sequence, you know uh, what gene has, it has made that RNA and therefore what protein will be, um, will, that RNA will go on to make. And therefore you can get a good understanding of the levels of the proteins being made in every single cell, because like I say, you can then map it back to each individual cell. And what we get, and what I'm showing you in this slide, is we get a, a plot of every single cell um, that, um, that we have, um, you know, a set, analyze the RNA. And we use um, a sort of, uh, we use software to um, uh, cluster these cells. So, um, uh, just if we just talk about photoreceptors, the one of the most important proteins and one of the most um, uh, uh, common proteins um, that each photoreceptor makes is rhodopsin because it's the light sensing cell. So if you can, um, if you have ten thousand cells, 
and uh, 8,000 of them are making lots of rhodopsin, you know that those cells are, are, are photoreceptors. Um, and you can, uh, you know, because we have, we, we understand the different genes that different cell types make, we can uh, th then separate all these cells and we can label these cells. We know which ones are photoreceptors, which ones are bipolar cells, and which ones are ganglion cells, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm showing you here is a, is a, a Tisney plot of um, all the different cells in one of our experiments. And the cell got different clusters. Um, and we are, by looking at the, uh, the RNA levels, we are able to tell which ones are the photoreceptors. And what I'm showing you here then is just a blown up version um, of um, every single photoreceptor cell that was harvested in the experiment and was analysed. And um, we can then look at the uh, not just the rhodopsin RNA, but we can look at the levels of every single R a gene that it's been making. And we can um, then make, we can analyse the photoreceptors and we can see a disease trajectory because the photoreceptors make up four different clusters. So there are four um, uh, groups of photoreceptors which are making different amounts of RNA. And um, on the left, what I'm showing you is um, uh, the red cluster, the yellow cluster, the green cluster, and the blue cluster. And the red cluster, there were, um, because we've bar uh, barcoded these, we know exactly which cells are and which mice these cells come from. And the vast majority of the photoreceptors in the red cluster are from the wild type healthy mice. And the vast majority of the green and blue uh, clusters uh, are uh, from the RPGR mutant mice. So, um, they seem to separate out and whenever we look at the RNA profiles of these different clusters, what we see is in cluster one, um, the, uh, uh, the different, we look at the differences between the RPGR and mutant and the wild type mice and we see that as the cells move from cluster one to two to three to four and um, they start making less genes or less RNAs that are involved in phototransduction and what I mean by that is light detection. So we think these cells are getting sick and they're stopping making the, the proteins that are needed for um, for um, light sensing. And as I said, these ones in clusters three and four, the vast majority of these cells are from the RPGR mutant mice. So that's very interesting. So it shows that as they start moving from health to stress, to disease, to death, they start down-regulating, they start making less um, uh, proteins that are involved in phototransduction. But what we then look at is we look at the um, RNA uh, profiles that are, or we look at the different levels of RNA that are upregulated in the mutant photoreceptor. And what we see is that um, there are lots of different pathways that are being upregulated, but one in particular is necroptosis. And as I said, necroptosis is this cell death pathway that is potentially been shown uh, there, there's, there are signs that it might be involved in cell death and RP and it appears to be upregulated in our dying RPGR mutant cells. So what we then did was um, or what we've done so far is just to add, go further and start to look at necroptosis and try to understand whether th this is happening in our photoreceptors. So necroptosis is regulated by a protein called AKT and when it, it is uh, a when AKT is activated by phosphorylating 
And what we what I'm showing you here is um, uh, an analysis of the protein of our RPG mutant retinas and the wild type. And there appears to be increased phosphorylation of AKT, increased activation of AKT. So that would be in keeping with uh, what leads to necroptosis. And whenever we look at the cells themselves, whenever we um, uh, make very, very fine sections of the back of the eye and look at a very high scope, what we see in our light here showing you is an electromagnetic of um, a burst dead uh, photoreceptor cell. And rather than um, uh, apoptosis, rather than this programmed cell death, what we're seeing is a burst cell, which would be more in keeping with necroptosis. What we then did was look at um, a, a protein that is required for necroptosis. It's a key marker of necroptosis. It's called MLKL. And what I'm showing you on the left here is uh, six photographs, um, three of the wild type eye, three of the mutant eye, and I'm showing you one each at six months, 12 months, and 18 months. And in uh, labeled in fluorescent green are the MLKL positive cells. And in the mutant cell, as the mice gets older and as the cells start to die, more and more of the cells are positive for MLKL, which is this protein that is required for necroptosis. And um, what I'm showing you on the right here is, is a graph showing that the number of cells that are MLKL positive goes up and up and up as the mouse gets older and as the photoreceptors start to die. So this would be in keeping with necroptosis as a, as a mechanism of cell death in RP. Now, this is exciting because necroptosis inhibitors are already in clinical trial for various inflammatory diseases and various neurodegenerative diseases. And what I'm showing you here is just a, a table from a review by Martins et al. from last year. Uh, uh, RIP kinases are the which regulate, which activate MLKL, which I spoke about uh, just a couple of minutes ago. And there are several RIP kinase inhibitors um, which are under uh, investigation for inflammatory conditions such as psoriasis, ulcerative colitis and rheumatoid arthritis to see if they can dampen down disease. And they're also being uh, 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 investigated in clinical trials uh, to determine whether uh, these uh, necroptosis inhibitors can, uh, can, are effective in uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, and multiple sclerosis. So the great thing about this is these drugs are already in humans, and they're all phase two and phase one safety trials, but if they show that they are safe, then we know we can use them in the eye. We know that they'll be safe in, 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 to, to use for retinitis pigmentosa. Now, um, the great thing about delivering treatments to the eye is that it's a fairly isolated organ, but these are systemic drugs that are being given to patients with Alzheimer's and, um, and ulcerative colitis and other diseases. So if they're safe in these trials, then we would suspect that they would be safe to give to the eye. The other thing <coughs> of interest is whether... Um, um, another thing we're interested in is um, cells that are recruited to the retina whenever the retina starts to degenerate. So what we saw in one of our clusters um, is in, in um, what I'm showing you here is this TISNY uh, plot of the single cell seq data and a, a cluster of the cells um, 
uh, that we uh, identified only in our mutant uh, mice and not in our wild type mice were um, uh, had high trans uh, high RNA levels that suggested that they were macrophages. Now macrophages are a um, are a cell that um, uh, sort of that eat uh, unhealthy cells, and uh, they're recruited to inflamed, inflamed, uh, stressed on uh, tissue, and they and they eat cells which are unhealthy. And so what we have, what I'm showing you here on the right, is uh, sections of a wild type mouse on the left and an RPGR mutant mouse on the right. And in uh, fluorescent green is a marker for macrophages. And sure enough, whenever we stain our retinas, we see uh, macrophages are being recruited to the outer seg uh, to the uh, to the retina uh, in our uh, in our RP models. And this would suggest that these cells, uh, the photoreceptors, are probably releasing. Um, uh, uh, recruiting factors, signals which are asking the macrophages to come into the retina to start, you know, uh, breaking up and eating the stressed photoreceptors. Um, and so this is another uh, focus of interest because if we can identify um, how these uh, or what signals these photoreceptors are releasing to recruit the macrophages, it again could be potentially a target to stop cells dying. Um, now, what we really understand, what we need to do if we are to fully understand um, the uh, sort of the, the cell recruitment pathways, uh, sorry, the cell signaling, the recruitment signaling, and to absolutely fully understand the mechanism of cell death in the photoreceptor, what we would love to do is um, do RNA sequencing of our, just our photoreceptors. So the great thing about single cell sequencing is we can uh, I, we can separate all separate out all the different cell types, um, and therefore we can just look at the the RNA transcript levels of our photoreceptors. But one of the drawbacks is is that the depth that at which the RNA uh, tr uh, transcripts can be read is 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 pretty shallow compared to old-fashioned bulk RNA sequencing. And so what we would love to do is to isolate the photoreceptors themselves um, and, and do bulk RNA sequencing um, on, on the photoreceptors and therefore get a much deeper read and therefore a much better understanding of the fluctuations in RNA and therefore the fluctuations in protein uh, in our photoreceptors as they start to die. And in order to do this, a very nice little uh, uh, mouse model um, in the lab where we've tagged rhodopsin with a little protein called SNAP and SNAP can be tagged by uh, fluorescent proteins. So what we can do is we can inject the eyes of these mice with a SNAP tag, with a fluorescent SNAP tag. It then binds to SNAP and because uh, our, the, the mice we have, uh, SNAP is, has been genetically tied to rhodopsin. Whenever the, the fluorescent tag binds to SNAP, it's binding to rhodopsin and therefore it's only binding to photoreceptors. And what I'm showing you here is a little movie of a retinal slice um, of our rhodopsin SNAP mice. And in fluorescent orange, uh, uh, moving around over about an hour and a half, you can see uh, outer, what I'm showing is outer segments moving back and forth uh, in our retinal uh, slices. So what I can then theoretically do is inject um, the, uh, the mice eyes. Uh, well, first of all, what I'll do is I, I've crossed 
um, the rhodopsin snap mice with the RPGR mutant mice. And I will then uh, I inject the, uh, the eyes with the fluorescent tag. And then I uh, carry out the conventional uh, protocol by to split the cells up. But instead of going to uh, single cell sequencing them, what I do is I pass them through a, a, a machine which can sort by fluorescence. So it can detect the fluorescent cells, which are the photoreceptors which have been labeled with this fluorescent tag and then I can just sort out just the photoreceptors and therefore I can get a population of photoreceptors of both RPGR mutant and wild type and we can then uh, submit those for bulk RNA sequencing to get a much deeper read to get a much better understanding of the changes in RNA that are occurring whenever uh, uh, these mice uh, have mutations that cause RP. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, what we've spoken about uh, today is just a little bit of um, the work we've been doing and trying to understand uh, how cells are dying, because I do think that if we can understand this and if we can um, uh, demonstrate that the cells are dying in the same manner across many different mouse models of RP, then in theory we could possibly uh, deduce from that that the photoreceptors in patients uh, with the varying different mutations are dying by the same way and we can maybe target them with inhibitors of cell death just like the necroptosis pathway that we've identified. Um, I've got lots of people that I need to thank. The most important person uh, is Faye Newton, who is the really talented postdoc in our lab, who has carried out all this work to try to understand cell death. Um, I work at the MRC Human Genetics Unit in Pleasantine Mills Lab. Um, as uh, Denise said, I've done a lot of work in with the French Constant Lab at our stem cell centre in Edinburgh, and I've got various collaborators across uh, the UK and in the States uh, who, who have been instrumental in all the work I do. Uh, and of course, last but very much not least, all the funders um, who uh, are foolish enough to give me the money to do this work um, and then of course the patients in NHS Lothian who uh, are instrumental in, in, in helping me carry out the research that I do. So I'm going to stop sharing now and um, I'll be more than happy to take any questions. Rolly, thank you so much. Um, Denise, can you just um, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me now? Yeah, super. Okay. Rolly, thank you for an absolutely fascinating talk. That was amazing on so many levels, um, not least the, um, the techniques that you're using in the lab, which are just absolutely incredible. Um, but also it was really nice to hear, I think, about, about something other than something very gene specific. We, we tend to focus a lot, I think, on, on the very gene specific stuff and what are the genes doing and have we found more genes? And I think it's really refreshing actually to hear a bit about um, the other things that are going on and perhaps some common pathways that will be applicable to a large proportion of our community. So that was really fantastic. Um, I can't see any hands up at the moment, but we have got a question in the uh, Q&A box. Uh, Raj says, please could you explain if there is any connection between RP and myasthenia gravis? Now, um, as far as I remember, myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder where there's a breakdown of the, the, the communication between nerve cells and muscle cells. Um, so, yeah, can you comment on that at all, Rolly? 
So as far as I'm aware, there's no link between myasthenia and RP, but there are some diseases where uh, uh, patients get uh, diseases. So, so myasthenia gravis, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a breakdown between uh, the nerve and the muscle. Uh, you get autoantibodies that uh, attack the uh, synapses or rather they attack one of the receptors uh, between the nerve and the muscle and therefore they reduce the ability of the muscle to contract and therefore it causes weakness and how that often manifests is weakness in your eye muscles and therefore you get um uh, you get uh, patients tend to present with either a drooping eyelid or double vision um, and so there's no link between that i'm aware of between myasthenia gravis and rp but there uh, is a link between certain uh diseases that can that can cause similar problems to eye movement that can also cause RP and that they tend to be um, uh, because of mutations in mitochondrial genes so right. the mitochondria are the um, sort of the powerhouses the engines of our cells they're actually billions of years ago were living on their own and then they thought um, it would be a very good idea to jump on board a mammalian cell and live in our cell because it's easier and um, the, the trade back the sort of symbiosis is, is they provide us with energy so so they're actually very very prehistoric living things that um, that now reside in our cells and so they have their own DNA um, and uh, your the DNA of mito the mitochondria is inherited from your mum because uh, sperm, the, the part of the sperm that gets into an egg doesn't have any mitochondria in it. So the mitochondria we have is all from our mums. And so mutation, and so they, they have their own mutations and those mutations can cause eye disease, one of which can be um, problems with eye movements and also can cause RP. Okay, so uh, would would that be picked up if somebody had a genetic test? Would that help to clarify if that was the case? Yeah, so we know of some genes which which cause these this sort of association. So yeah, absolutely, you'd be specifically looking for them. So if we send whenever we send our panel testing um, to um, you know whichever lab does the. It varies over the regions. It's either London, Manchester, yeah. or or Oxford now. Uh, Genomics England has organised into these three uh, centres for testing for for retinal disease. Um, uh, where am I going with this? Yes. Yeah, so whenever we send our RP, our blood down to test RP, it's tested on a panel which doesn't test mitochondrial genes. So you'd have to be specifically looking for that. Right. So presumably that would depend on your ophthalmologist noticing a picture. Yeah. of other symptoms as well which would indicate there might be a mitochondrial problem yeah. okay thank you um we've got a nice comment from valerie actually not a question but roly thank you very much for such a clear talk it's good to know that you've been busying away while a lot of other projects have been on hold during covid so uh an appreciative delegate uh, there um yeah does anybody else I, i've got a question that i could ask but is anybody else um wanting to raise a hand or um, type anything into the box. Um, Jason, thank you. Jason says, um, my son was diagnosed 21 years ago with X-linked RP. How long do you feel it will be before we have a cure? That, <laughs> that question we all dread. <laughs> yeah, um, so 
and cure is obviously the um is the loaded word there because uh the to cure it you really need to correct the mutation and you know, I'm sure everybody's heard of CRISPRs, you know, they've won the Nobel Prize, or rather the two female um, scientists who sort of showed that they, that CRISPRs can edit the genome in mammalian and therefore human cells. They've been awarded the Nobel Prize for chemistry last year. And um, so with CRISPRs, you can edit the genome, you can correct genes, you can, you can, you can edit the genome however you want with CRISPRs, and we use them loads in the lab, they're amazing. We're now starting to uh, explore their use in treating dis genetic disease and there is a CRISPR trial for one mutation which causes Leber's congenital amaurosis so it's the you know the really severe retinal dystrophy and um, it's a mutation in the gene um, so you know watch this space fingers crossed it's going to be a monumental effort to get that optimized and working but you never know and that would cause that would lead to a cure because you're correcting mutation but 21 years of x-linked rp and um, when is there going to be a treatment and um, there is a gene therapy so there are a few forms of x-linked rp but as i said the most common one by far is rpgr and um, 90 percent of of x-linked rp is caused by rpgr mutations and so the ch chances are uh, sorry, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote the question. Jason. It was Jason. Jason. So, Jason, the chances are your son's probably got an RPGR mutation. Um, and there is a gene therapy trial starting worldwide for RPGR gene therapy um, imminently. Um, we're a trial centre in Edinburgh. Um, there is There are two in Scotland. There are at least two in the UK, in England, sorry. Um, and the, the trial is aiming to treat 50 patients worldwide um, giving an RPGR gene therapy. So, you know, again, watch this space. That's, you know, so if Jason wants to be recruited onto the trial, he would have to get, uh, you know, contact his ophthalmologist. I don't know where Jason lives. You can maybe type in um, uh, to the chat. Um, but uh, yeah, be seen by your ophthalmologist and be referred to a trial site. I'd more than happily uh, see your son to assess him, but Edinburgh might be a long way away and there may well be a, treat at a trial site much closer to home. I think it's also possibly just worth mentioning as, as well, Rolly, that clinical trials will always have quite stringent criteria. Yeah. So there's always a screening process to go through. Um, I know the trial site, consultants will all all be very happy to see people but um, you just need to be aware that there will be a screening um, to see if people fit the criteria. Um, yeah absolutely and, and what we're finding because RPGR is such a severe disease is that a lot of the patients I've screened sadly they they don't meet the minimum criteria of vision uh, just because they're because it's such a severe disease um so yeah no you're quite right I should have caveated that you know the someone will happily see them hopefully to to screen them and and see whether whether they would qualify and you know some you know some patients who do qualify don't fancy you know this is it is a trial it's unproven we know it's pretty safe but um but it is a trial and so um but if you would like to find out, yeah, do do get in touch with your ophthalmologist. Okay. Um, question from Tracy. Um, 
does having high blood pressure or things like allergies that cause excessive inflammation uh, cause the cells to die? So I guess contribute to that cell death process. So I think the allergy part is, um, allergies tend to be external. They tend to be, you know, mucosa. So they tend to be nose, uh, you know, rhinitis, you know, hay fever, um, allergic conjunctivitis and that's all external and that does not contribute to the inflammation at the back of the eye so that's the so that's that and um, as far as blood pressure goes um we do know that high blood pressure so, so the retina is unbelievably metabolic as i said it's really active and it's got this really rich and blood supply behind it called the choroid, um, which you know it, it gives an, 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 such a huge amount of blood is supplied to the retina given the size of the organ, and um, high blood pressure, you know, untreated sustained high blood pressure compromises that structure the choroid, um, and uh, it damages it, and it therefore uh, brings less um, uh, blood and less oxygen to the photoreceptors. Now I don't know of any trial which shows that RP patients with high blood pressure lose sight quicker but um, there's no doubt that uh, your photoreceptors are very susceptible um, and so you know whenever I see my patients in you know in clinic the first thing I do is ask about smoking um, you know and I don't chastise them but because I know how difficult it is to quit you know something you know so so addictive but but um you know smoking is just when you've got these susceptible cells and uh, you have to stop smoking you have to eat green vegetables you have to exercise to keep your blood pressure down all that is uh, you're standing yourself and you know, you're giving yourself your best opportunity to 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 slow the disease process like i say there's probably nothing in the literature about blood pressure and are accelerating RP, but it would make sense that you know you would keep you know keep tabs in it and get it under control. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, Mark says thank you very much for your talk. Can you tell me what part the RP one gene plays within the retina? <laughs> what does RP one do? Is that something to do? Is it redopsin? Uh, so so I don't yeah so I so so genes were all labelled one yeah. to whatever or you know, up to fifty something um, uh, um if someone can Google RP one and what the actual gene is I might be able I've to I've got a feeling I've got a feeling it's it's RHO I've got but I can check that or perhaps Denise could you have a look for us have you got a phone to hand um. Jason, by the way, going back to Jason, he says his son lives in Kent and goes to Moorfields. Did you say Moorfields was a was a centre for the um, uh, for the gene therapy trial? Yeah, yeah. UCL and your GTX. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. So, if your son goes to Moorfields, um, um, yeah, they should phone up and just say you've heard about the trial. Um, and if he's if he wants to be screened, then yeah, they'll okay. certainly do that. And um, so RP one is a microtubule associated proteins. So um, um, so the microtubules are 
uh, I, I spoke about cilia. So cilia are the censoring organelles, and um, they're you know yeah they're antennae essentially, and and the photoreceptor has this huge expanse of ciliary membrane and the rhodopsin is all stuffed in there and the microtubules um give it structure they get you know they 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 over but also along the microtubules you have these uh, uh, uh little motors called dynines which bring proteins all the way up the cilia to the tip which is where the outer segment is and so um these microtubules are almost like the train tracks on which um um, uh, 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 yeah, uh, these these uh, motor proteins. Um, uh, sorry, it's kinesins bring it to the tip, and dynines bring them back. But it's along these microtubules. So RP one, I just googled it. It's um, I haven't haven't properly read it, but it looks like it's an axonemal microtubule associated protein. So it goes towards building these train tracks, which okay. uh, support give the scaffold for the cell for the cilia plus uh, allow the, the proteins to work their way up to the tip. Brilliant, thank you. Um, Don, uh, we've got time, I think this might have to be the last one, but Don just says, um, I've had RP for over 30 years. I recently had a genetic test from a blood sample which found one faulty gene and one possibly faulty gene. Mm. Um, are there any more tests which could be worth having? So, um, so I assume these uh, the so you've got two copies of every gene, and the vast majority of um, RP is or the vast majority of genetic disease is recessive disease, and with recessive disease you need two faulty copies because with only one faulty copy the the healthy copy can make enough protein that you don't have a disease, and so I'm assuming uh, you find what the the test is showing is that you have a you have a mutation in one copy of a specific gene which we know causes rp and then you've got a change in the other gene which um has never been shown to cause rp before and so it's called a vus it's called a variant of unknown significance and um, because we don't know if that mutation is damaging to the gene i.e uh, does the mutation mean you don't make the right protein a healthy protein and so um, the, the way they're figured, so if, if you have a VUS, a variant of unknown significance, it's because it's never been reported in the literature before. And therefore, we, 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 you know, if, if 5,000 people around the world had that and they all had RP, we'd say, well, it's clearly disease causing. Um, uh, people can take these, so um, uh, computational biologists or people that work on a computer, take proteins, mutate little things and they see what and then they predict how the protein shape will be and whether it, it, it'll interfere with the function of the protein and um uh, you're gonna have to wait i guess for someone to pick up this mutation and have a look and see it you know on a computational you know uh, from a software i'll you know uh, approach does this look like it would, it would interrupt the function of that protein and um, so that so that's not really a test that's someone in academia you know knowing the mutation um and uh and then being and you know so therefore being linked into a genetic uh, eye lab and then you know sadly if you're if you if you're 
seen by a, if you live in a region that doesn't have that those links then it can be difficult yeah yeah i mean what's encouraging is there there is more and more of that work going on and we've got so much better at, at reading genetic sequences and and understanding and and doing this work so and as more and more people get involved in research then there's more data and more people have genetic tests then there's more data and this all helps researchers learn but absolutely um, absolutely and what we do have now is is, is we we will have we are making uh, repositories for all these things and therefore anyone around the world with an interest in you know in in VUSs in you know say in RP can access all these VUSs and so it just takes a you know eventually a computational biologist will be able to see the mutation that you have and and do it himself he doesn't need to be as you say it doesn't have to have a physical geographical link with the ophthalmologist that is sent the blood off so yeah all in time it's just incredibly frustrating i do know for 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 uh, people with rp to have to wait for this all to happen but but that that repository is in motion and, and that will really help you know yeah. huge collaborative effort is required yeah thank you and thank you for your thank you everybody for your questions um we don't have any more on the go raj whose question you answered earlier has just said thank you very much for explaining it so clearly and thank you for your talk um so i think that that um is probably that and it's bang on eight o'clock so um Rolly, once again thank you so much uh for such an interesting talk it was uh, it was really good and thank you everybody for joining us and asking all those great questions and we really hope um that you've uh, enjoyed your hour with Roly. and thank you very much for having me yet again and also just for everyone who's tuned in yeah it's 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 very nice to you know to tell people about what we're doing and so yeah so thanks for listening okay thank you very much Rowley. It, it's really great as as um Kate says to to hear sort of different approaches and we'd we'd love to welcome you back in the future to hear an update as your your research progresses and I just want to thank everybody who's joined us uh, just just to follow on from Kate but also just to let you know that over the next couple of months we've got a number another a number of online events planned that you may also be interested in joining um, on Wednesday the 29th of September we have an information evening it's a slightly longer two-hour event and whilst it is focused for people in Northern Ireland there's a host of interesting speakers and subjects that will be interesting to anyone, no matter where you are. So please do consider joining us for that. On Wednesday, the 13th of October, we have a similar event that is Wales focused, but again, you're welcome. And finally, on Wednesday, the 27th of October, we'll be hosting our next information webinar. And then we'll be joined by um, Michael Gilhooley with a fascinating presentation on optogenetics. Over the next couple of weeks, uh, sorry, over the next couple of days even, um, we're going to be sending out an email that has details of where you can listen to Rowley's presentation again, just in case you want to, to just um, go over it and, and check any information and um, share it with people that haven't been able to come along. I'm sure you found it, they'll find it as interesting as you do. Uh, and we'll also be seeking your feedback on today's session. 
we really do value your feedback and it does help us to develop our future webinars and also our other services. So please, please do reply to that. Thank you all again. Goodbye.